I'm Daniel Hart, and uh, I'm here with you today to talk about uh, poodles. Once again, we're continuing the series John Powell started, and I'm honored to pick up where he left off. <laughs> That's a little continuity joke there, <laughs> so for anybody who's watching. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me here to your studio. It's uh, yeah. such a great, you know, honor to have you here, to have you on on All Access. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, so for viewers at home, Daniel's studio is in the process of being put together. He he just moved. Yeah, so it's, still... it's like half the stuff is half the stuff is here, and half the stuff is somewhere <laughs> over there. Well, maybe I'll get it put up someday. Right. If I ever stop working. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, to, to start off, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about kind of, you know, kind of your childhood growing up. And then at what point in your life, I mean, when did music, when did you find music or when did music find you? And how did this, how did this, how did this happen? How did you get to this point in your life? And what were kind of the steps that led here? Uh, both of my parents are musicians, professional musicians. And they started me on the violin when I was three years old. So I've been playing music pretty much my whole life. A lot of times I feel like I'm, I'm better at that than, you know, expressing myself in words. Uh, and I took violin lessons growing up all the way through high school and then um, college. I didn't want to do music stuff. My other real passion was uh, theater. So I got a degree in playwriting. Oh, wow. Um, but in, in college, I started playing in bands, a lot of bands. And that's what led me to where I am now. Because I, I knew going into college that um, studying classical violin to, with the intention of playing in an orchestra or a chamber group just didn't appeal to me. It didn't uh, get me excited about music. But I met a music professor when I was at uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And he and I just really hit it off. So we started playing together. Uh, he formed a band called the Doubting Scholars, and it was him and mostly his composition students that were in the music program, and then, and then me. And we would play shows at this coffee house across the street from the university, probably like once a month or once every six weeks. And this uh, professor, his name is Kevin Hanlon, and he's still teaching at SMU. He treated the band like a class, sort of, or like like just like the mind of an educator always. So we were in the band. There was like a rhythm section, and then I played violin and guitar and sang and um, various other odds and ends. And then sometimes we had a horn section as well. And um, we would play uh, old blues songs. He had us learn Oingo Boingo covers, Bob Wills, uh, traditional Irish reels and jigs, Russian folk songs, uh, jazz standards. You know, it's like uh, everything that I could have ever wanted to learn about music yeah. and how to play it and how to improvise on the spot and how to collaborate with other people um, was stuff that I really learned there. The classical training that I had before that is, was essential, but the stuff that I really learned, I learned there. And then I started playing in bands pretty much full-time after school, um, touring with bands like St. Vincent 
and the Polyphonic Spree, and a little bit with Broken Social Scene, and then I have my own bands as well for which I was writing music, and uh, did that for five or six years, and then some of that touring work started to dry up, and I was looking at what my options were, and it was around that time that I met David Lowry, and he was making his first film, which is this micro-budget indie called Saint Nick that nobody ever saw. <laughs> and uh, he asked me, he had heard some of my own band's music at the time, and he asked me if I would be willing to write a couple of uh, pieces of music for this film of his. And I had never done it. I had never thought about it. Um, I really loved movies, but it wasn't a career that had occurred to me as, as an option. I just wanted to play in bands. But I liked him and I liked the film, so I said, sure, why not? And I wrote a couple pieces of music for it and it was really fun for me and I felt like I understood what the film was and how to translate that musically. And he really liked those, those two songs that I wrote and he put them in the, in the film. And then uh, the following year, he got the money to make a short uh, film called Pioneer and he asked me to score that whole thing. It was only 15 minutes long, so it wasn't crazy, but uh, it was the first thing that I had ever actually scored intentionally rather than just writing a couple pieces of music. Um, so I scored that whole thing, and once again, we both really felt like we were on the same page from the start, and we both thought about storytelling the same way, and it was not any kind of big mystery for me. It was like I would watch his film, and then musical ideas would just sort of show up in my head. Uh, so I just I put those out, and he really liked those ideas. Uh, so then, when that film was pretty well received at Sundance, he got the funding to make another feature, which was Ain't Them Body Saints. And when he got the money to make that, he asked me to do that film as well. And that's pretty much it from there. I like, watched it. Uh, people really liked that movie. Not a ton of people saw it, but the people who did see it. Um, were a lot of directors and producers and they saw that movie and they heard my music and then I basically spent the next three years um, making music because somebody working on another film had seen that and said to themselves I want music like that for my film and so I, I spent three years making very uh, Ain't Them Body Saints inspired music. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're, you've set up your own trap. <laughs> <laughs> I pigeonholed myself. With your I, first film. That's, that's, that's a, an accomplishment. <laughs> Ironically, um, my, uh, my original ideas for the score didn't involve as much of a folk influence as ended up being in the, in the score. And it was in my initial conversations with David Lowry, the director, the writer-director, and he said... I'm hearing um, banjo and mandolin, mm. and I had not really just uh, other than like noodling around. I had not really played those instruments before then, but I I was like, sure, I'll give that a try. Why not? And and so I got a banjo and a mandolin, and I started playing them, and uh, that really became the sound. But those and the, and the hand claps really became the sound of the film, and um, a sound that people really responded to. So uh, yeah, I ended up doing something that I had never planned to do, which was scoring films. And then I ended up doing a type of film scoring that I had never planned to do, which was pretty folk-heavy, yeah. folk-influenced um, film scoring for several years, until I wrote music for another film that 
that people liked and then they asked me to do music like that. <laughs> um, talking how you met kind of uh, David Lowry. Yeah. Yeah, we were both living in Dallas at the same time. So what were your first impressions of him? I mean, he's kind of the biggest influence on your career yeah. right now. And what was your kind of first... I mean, did you click right away? Was it a, like, this really works? Like, you guys have the same kind of aesthetic and feeling yeah. towards everything? Was that kind of how it was? That's how it was, yeah. We clicked right away. He doesn't speak very much. He's, he's, not, um, he's not a big talker. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever we would talk about... He can talk about films, like, nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> other social interactions, not his favorite thing to do. Um, he's just the sweetest, friendliest guy. Yeah. He's just a bit of an introvert. Right. Except when it comes to talking about movies. Um, and so when, when we would talk about story and talk about music that would fit with the kinds of stories he was telling, it w there, was never, um, there was never much disagreement, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt like I understood him, and he saw something in the music that I was making that sounded like what he was looking for for his films. Right. And I feel like so we're on uh, six, film number six or seven now together, yeah. and I've done the music for all of his films to date. And I feel like it just gets easier as we go. So yeah, has it has it evolved? I mean, do you just kind of know him now? Does, do you, I mean, what what like? So let's skip ahead a little bit to Old yeah. Man the Gun now and yeah. compare that to um, Saint Nick. I mean, what what's what's the difference there between the start and where you are now in terms of that yeah. relationship, that like communication, I guess. Yeah, there there just doesn't we don't have to talk as much before I start working on stuff, mm -hmm. and I feel the freedom to explore whatever I want to explore, and he seems to be into that idea. That's good. <laughs> so, so when, because uh, the film that we did before Old Man and the Gun was a ghost story, yeah. which came out last year, and with a ghost story, um, I think like 70% of the score is my first draft of the score, Wow, which has never happened before and it hasn't happened since. Um, it just was a film that resonated with me so much. It's a beautiful, I mean, the score and the movie are both beautiful, I mean. Thank you. Yeah. I, I love the film. It, it uh, I think about it a lot even now. Yeah, um, but it just it clicked for me so much, and we we didn't really talk much beforehand. The stuff that we actually, ironically, the stuff that we talked about before we started working on it was making a score that felt kind of like a John Carpenter score from mm. the eighties, like more synthy. Yeah, and that leaned more into uh, the horror side of what he was doing, and we tried that out. Um, like I wrote, I wrote a cue or two with that in mind and, and we plugged it into the film and it was kind of obvious to both of us that that wasn't really what the film was about mm -hmm. so we, we shifted gears and then, and then everything else just like fell right into place and there was very little discussion about it it was just me feeling like I knew exactly what to do and then doing it and David being really excited about it I mean, how did that, uh, just sticking with Ghost Story, because that film has very little dialogue. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, it's only 90 minutes, I think, or something in that, or so it didn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't stretched too long, but that still puts everything, I think, on your shoulders, almost, because yeah. you're telling the story with the images. I mean, was that, did, did, does David Temp at all, did, I mean, to structure anything? And, mm -hmm. and how did that help your, how did you shape it? How did you shape that score when, with no dialogue? <laughs> Yes, David, David had temp music in the film before I started working on it. Um, 
Not necessarily because he likes temp music, because on most of the projects we've worked on, he doesn't have a lot of temp, right. if any. But with that one, I had been working on the Exorcist TV show for Fox, um, leading up to working on a ghost story, so I didn't have as much time to mm. work on a ghost story as, as I think he wanted and I wanted. So they were ahead of me on uh, that okay. one. So he had put in, he hadn't put in, he hadn't put in temp music everywhere, but he put in a few key pieces of music. Um, there was a, like a Charlie Brown, there was a Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown piece in a Christmas tree lighting scene mm -hmm. that happens with a Latinx family about halfway through the film. And there was a broken social scene song at the end of the film. And there was uh, a, a track from Sicario, from the end credits of Sicario, mm -hmm. Gabriel's song I, th I think is yes. what it's called yeah, something, yeah. something like that from Johan's score yeah, yeah from Johan's score for Sicario that he had put in during this really long non-dialogue montage and I had already replaced that same piece of music working on The, the Exorcist really and um, <laughs> if you don't know that piece of music it involves um, voices a lot of vocals manipulated to sound really creepy, eerie, yeah. and it sounds like children. I don't know if it is it actually is children singing, right. but it's so iconic that trying to approximate it in any way is difficult. Yeah. So in both cases, both on The Exorcist and with A Ghost Story, I went in what I felt like was a different direction, and in both cases it seemed to work. Everybody seemed pretty happy with it, and I was happy with it. Yeah, that's why you don't have to just mimic Johan, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it just, uh, it would have felt like um, like a, a bad copy, right. a bad carbon copy, just because his thing is so identifiable and so amazing. I, I love it, I just didn't want to yeah, exactly. do it over again. <laughs> it was, because I was talking to somebody else, and somebody mentioned that Sicario is really like the hot temp track. Like, it's in everything these yeah, days? Yeah, it's in everything. Really? Wow. Yeah, that's... Sicario, Under the Skin... Um, I get a lot of Harry Gregson Williams mm -hmm. for the stuff that I'm that's working it. on. I don't know if that's everywhere, but yeah, that's it. Yeah, because I mean, it is these, these scores, and I, um, I think that then of course you got when you were talking about kind of pigeonholing yourself with with uh, Ain't Them Body Saints. I think these scores are so they just live so well. I think away from the picture, even though in context that's what they're meant for. But I, I, that's why I love your scores so much as well. And that's, of course, not the goal of the, the music is not to make a great album. But, yeah, it, it just evokes certain emotions and it's able to, people can, I think, relate to it and then reincorporate it into their, into their, what they're feeling. So, and I've, I mean, I've, I've still listened to Ain't the Body Saints quite a bit, so it still lives on. <laughs> I think David's films especially lend themselves to that. Yeah. Both because there's not as much dialogue, but also because his view is kind of like when there's music, he likes it to be upfront, yeah. if possible, if it makes sense. And so, if the music's upfront and the music is doing a, a, like heavy lifting in terms of storytelling, then the music will probably make more sense outside of the film itself. I think because it is doing so much storytelling on its own. Absolutely. Um, so, when you started working, once you know you kind of launched into this career as a composer, and you did your first films and, and shows not with David, yeah. did you find it kind of, uh, a, I want to say a challenge, but interesting to kind of adapt to different directors and different personalities? I mean, that's yeah. a huge part of your job. I mean, did you, yeah. how was yeah, that? It's really how, hard. Did David spoil you? <laughs> he spoiled me. I didn't know what it was like. 
I didn't go to I didn't go to um, school for film scoring where they probably tell you it's gonna be hard. You're gonna, gonna like have to learn how to work with other people that you don't always see eye to eye with. Oh, I just got spoiled right from the start. And the first uh, non-David feature that I scored was um, a film called Comet, mm -hmm. which was written and directed by Sam Esmail. With Justin Long. With right? Justin yeah. Long and Emmy Rossum. Yeah. And Sam went on to make Mr. Robot, um, which is incredible. Amazing, yeah. Um, but Comet was his first feature. It was the first thing he'd ever directed. And um, he was he was a it fresh and I was fresh. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and we butted heads a lot. Really? Yeah. But yeah, there was so much back and forth on that, like way more discussion about what things were and not liking what I was doing and mm. making it different um, with Sam than there had ever been with David. Yeah. And I just uh, went through like a real culture shock. Um, and I think Sam was also having his own difficulties, like with the producers sort of butting heads about what he wanted the right. film to be and what they wanted the film to be. And that's just the nature of how it goes. Sometimes. Yeah, it's just the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in the end, like I, uh, Comet went through a very limited release when it came out, but then a couple years later it, it was on Netflix and then it found this whole new following and people um, uh, started reaching out about a lot about the music for it and not being able to get it. So wow. we ended up releasing the score for it like a couple of years after it came out in, in theaters. And so I had to go back and revisit the music after not having heard it for quite a while. And actually I, I found that I liked a lot of it. Like I was really proud of some of the stuff that we had gotten to. It just took us a lot longer to get there yeah. than it had for me previously. Right. It was a huge, uh, I'm grateful to Sam for that because it was like a real... He had to be very patient with me, I'm, right. I'm sure. And, <laughs> and it was a real learning experience for me to learn that like, it's not always going to be super easy, but just yeah. because it's not super easy doesn't mean that it's bad. Exactly. I mean, that's just the creative process. And that's just, I think, the, the natural dialogue and, and collaboration of what, what you do as a storyteller is trying to tell a story. Yeah. So you do have kind of a kind of an unconventional path to becoming composer. Yeah. I mean, when you first started, did you feel like an outsider? I mean, did you ever feel like... Yes. This is strange. Yes, like. I, I felt like an outsider. I still feel like an outsider. I feel like a weirdo. <laughs> Even in my family, I feel like an outsider. <laughs> I'm the black sheep of every room that I'm in. Uh, I, de I definitely felt like an outsider because I didn't go to school for this and I didn't plan on pursuing this and just sort of uh, presented itself to me right. and seemed like something that I could do and would really enjoy. Yeah. But, uh, it just kind of came out of nowhere. But uh, ironically, it does like sort of, sort of marry the two things that I was the most interested in growing up, which was playing music and um, playwriting. Playwriting mm -hmm. is what I went to school for, and that's what my degree's in. So the study of character, um, emotional arcs, plot lines, development of story, all that stuff was stuff that I was totally captivated by Yeah. Um, when I was uh, growing up and going through school. Uh, I just never saw the two things coming together like this. Yeah. Um, but even now, like the people that I spend the most of my time with now that I'm living in Los Angeles are um, other film composers. And I feel like these folks, most of whom went to school for this and um, did some additional writing for bigger composers when they were starting out and then used what they learned from those composers to um, inform their own work uh, later on. 
have this experience that I don't yeah. have and it leaves me wondering what it is that I'm missing, which is why I have things like this book that I just got <laughs> now, The Study of Counterpoint. This is uh, what Mozart studied and what Beethoven studied. And uh, I think I could probably learn some things from this that probably <laughs> other composers already know. But um, I think also because when I started working on films, I was living in Dallas and not here. Yeah. It made me feel like I wasn't connected to this world as much. And um, most of the work that I did for the first five years I was scoring was remote work. So you're, yeah. Was it a... When you moved here, was that kind of a, also a little culture shock too, being like in the industry, or was it not so much? Well, I'd already lived in Los Angeles previously, oh, that's right. um, but it was before I'd started film scoring or even thought about film scoring. Mm -hmm. So it, the the city itself was not much of a shock to me, and I'd already been um, working with William Morris at, for like five years mm. by the time that I got here. So that aspect of of the industry was not a uh, big shock to me but I think just this idea that here there is this entire community of people doing what I'm doing and we can talk to each other and be a community together and help each other um, is uh, is new to me and unexpected and awesome yeah I mean and I also think it's helped that you having your collaboration with David you both have grown in this industry together and kind of started yeah. off early and kind of grown into it and yeah and one of your I mean biggest projects is when he uh, got to do Pete's Dragon I mean that was yeah. a big studio feature big studio um, big the biggest studio. the biggest one <laughs> the one that owns everything <laughs> I mean so I mean yeah you weren't originally attached to it. it was supposed to be Howard Shore right I wasn't attached to it um, when David started working on the film, which was in 2014, mm -hmm. he told Disney that he wanted me to score the film. Right. And I had some meetings at Disney. I met with Mitchell Lieb, who's the head of music at Disney, yeah. and he was the sweetest man. Oh, he's and great. And we talked yeah. for like two hours or something, and he just talked to me um, and uh, basically said, I would love to hear what you, what you would write for this film, and I don't... I'm the last person who wants to break up a composer-director relationship, but I have uh, expectations from yeah. my bosses, and um, they, you know, they have um, stakes in this film succeeding, and so they want to surround David with people that are known quantities to them. Yeah, and I understood that at the time; it made sense to me, and still makes sense to me. I I I respect that he was so honest with me about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wrote some music for it, and I think, and and he basically just said no. Um, he listened to the music, and he was like, "I don't, I don't think this is going to work for the film. Mm. Um, let's look at some other options." And so David ended up going with Howard Shore to work on the film. And um, looking back, I think one of the reasons that the music that I submitted wasn't right for the film is because. In my mind, I was trying to write music for a big Disney film. Mm. I grew up watching big Disney films, and, yeah. I, and I love the music in them. And I think my mistake was in trying to make what I thought they would want to hear, right. rather than making something that was maybe closer to the type of storytelling that David and I had always done. Yeah, Because this is a big Disney movie, but it's still a very down-to-earth film. It has quiet moments. 
it has intimate scenes between people, and there's not a lot of dialogue. So in a lot of ways, it is very much like David's other films. It is. It's a, you, I feel like you two have created this like American folk cinema genre of just like <laughs> about people. I mean, everything it just comes down to people, but it's done in such yeah. a a beautiful visual and you know sonic way and and but yeah it's telling just kind of these yeah like american folk cinema i don't know it's kind of yeah. how, how it used to describe it and peace dragon was that yeah it, yeah it feels that way to me too like the whole the whole body of work that we've been working on right it, it, it so i mean like so that. what how did you get in i mean so he was working with howard shore yeah so so howard worked on the film for for several months and i think um they just never quite saw eye to eye mm. on what it was that they were looking for. Like uh, David felt like the music that Howard's making wasn't quite right for the film, and I think Howard's vision for what the music was should should be wasn't quite um, gelling with what David wanted, mm. or with what Disney thought was the best thing was right. the best fit for the film. So so they decided to part ways. Yeah. Um, as often happens in this yeah, industry. differences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at that point, David had been working on the film for over a year. And so, whereas he came in to the project as an unknown quantity on which Disney was taking a bit of a risk, yeah. Um, yeah. after a year, he was someone with a lot of credibility. And when things didn't work the way that they wanted to work with Howard, he came back to Mitchell and, and said, I think we should give Daniel another chance. Yeah. And um, he played Mitchell some other stuff of mine that wasn't my attempt at a big okay. Disney score. Right. And they had already seen footage of the film at this point and realized that it was going to be a more intimate film than maybe was originally planned. Yeah. Um, and and so Mitchell was like, you know what? You're you're right. We should we should give him another chance. And and you know that in itself is impressive that he could like change his mind That's in that amazing. way and be willing to take a risk on an unknown. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I flew to L.A. I was living in Dallas at the time still, and I flew to L.A. and I spent about three weeks at Disney going through what was essentially another audition process mm -hmm. where um, Mitchell had thought of a few key scenes in the film that he wanted me to write music for that he thought would be able to help us know whether I would be capable of taking on um, a project of the size yeah. that Peace Dragon was. Yeah. And so I did. I wrote music for those three scenes, and um, I would write it till I was happy with it and then show it to David, and he would give me feedback, and I would tweak it until he was happy with it, and then we would show it to the producers, Jim and Adam from Whitaker Entertainment, and they would give us feedback until they were happy with it, and then uh, we would show it to Mitchell, and he would give us feedback until he was happy with it, and then, uh, and then we would start to show it to his bosses. Because he basically um, not only took a chance on me, but gave me every opportunity to succeed in like, telling me what he thought would get me the job, yeah, basically. Yeah, just kind of guiding you. Yeah. 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 So then uh, we showed it to the vice president of the studio, and he was very enthusiastic about it. And so I spent another week or so just making some a few revisions here and there, and then um, we sat down with the president of the studio, um, Sean, and and Sean watched it, and he was just really supportive, very thoughtful um, comments about what he had seen. Mm -hmm. Obviously, music was very important to him. Yeah. Um, but he basically just said, 
this is good, let's do this. That's awesome. Um, which was not really what I was expecting. <laughs> I mean, how nervous were you during those times? I was so nervous. Oh my God. I felt like there was so much pressure because I knew that making a big score in the way that I thought it should be wasn't going to work. Yeah. But at the same time, I knew that there were scenes in the film that were going to need like a big orchestral sound. And so I wanted to make it fit in those two worlds at the same time while also not trying to just live up to their expectations but right. just be true to the story. And um, it, I'm thankful it worked out. Cause it, was, it was a great score, man. Like it Thanks. Was, it, was, it turned out so well and it, it, it has your sound and your, and your feel in it. And it just it feels like a lusher version of like everything that came before. So... It feels that way to me too, yeah. and um, despite all those levels of feedback and revision that I just described, which we went through for all the music in mm -hmm. the film, you know, David, I'm happy, then David's happy, then Jim and Adam are happy, and then uh, Mitchell's happy, and then the, uh, Louis, the vice president, is happy, and then finally the president, Sean, would come in every once in a while and, and watch a bunch of stuff. But um, even throughout all that process, I feel like the score for Pete's Dragon is it's very, very close. It, it basically is the vision that David and I had for the score for the film. That's awesome. Um, the, the changes that, that they, were, they were requesting were um, a lot of times cosmetic things or mm -hmm. like just things to sort of um, improve what was already there. Yeah. You know. I mean, was it daunting also doing kind of a, it was a big orchestral score as well? Yeah. Um, did you work with orchestrators? I mean, how, I mean, what was that process like and kind of utilizing that orchestra your scores before were kind of very intimate and small yeah. and this one's a little bit more full and big yeah so i played in orchestras growing up yeah um i love orchestral music and listen to a lot of it and especially um like stravinsky i've, I've spent a lot of time looking it over listening to it and looking at what he did so i i felt comfortable um working with an orchestra uh but um, still had never done it before so it yeah. took me a while like I yeah. worked really long hours and part of it was um, just that the there was a lot of work but part of it was that I needed the time to figure out how to voice things and which instruments to put these ideas in and how yeah. to fill out the arrangement um, so so it, it did take me a while the, the other thing about um, I think this would be true for most studios but it's definitely true at Disney is that in order for the music to be approved you have to give them an orchestral mock-up mm. of the music, a demo that sounds basically as full as it's going to be when the actual orchestra plays yeah. it. And so before we ever got to an orchestrator or a copyist, I had to make complete orchestral demos. Yeah. So I did a fair amount of orchestrating on my own. And then once Disney was happy with things, we brought in Kevin Casca, who is John Debney's orchestrator, and oh, he also wow. works with Hans from time to time, yeah. and lots of other amazing people. He's like one of the best in town, and and uh, he orchestrated the score for me, and he took my ideas for orchestration, and he didn't he didn't change them a lot. He just added more stuff to yeah. it to make it even more magical. Yeah, kind really, of the magic Disney touch. Really special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he's a brilliant orchestrator. He th did stuff I never would have thought of, and I considered 
working with him on Pete's Dragon to be like a master class in orchestration. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and just going back to the, just the film itself and approaching mm -hmm. that story, because the story itself, um, I consider that the kind of like a timeless story. It's kind of the, you know, the boy and his kind of fish out of water pet or mythical creature. And we've seen that with E.T. We've seen that even recently with How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah. Um, was it kind of challenging to just like, like for David also, you working with David, like what, what are we trying to say here? What's different about our story and unique about our story? Yeah, I think, I, I know that David had a lot of back and forth with Disney when they were developing things. Mm -hmm. and, and with Jim and Adam at Whitaker, because they were sort of shepherding through, him through the process. Because right. they had done a lot of big films and this was his first big one. Um, but by the time that I came on, they'd already been through so much stuff, so much of this back and forth that um, David had pretty much honed what he was looking yeah. for for the film. And the film was so far along that I was looking at fairly complete edits. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of CGI in the film because it's a CGI dragon right. and, and the dragon's <laughs> in almost every scene. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, if I'd started at the beginning of the process, I would have been looking at a lot of stick figures. Yeah, or just like you blocky. Know, yeah, the, the <laughs> gray dragon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very um, um, primitive um, <laughs> animation. But, uh, when I, when I got there, it was pretty far along. And, and so there wasn't a lot of guessing that I had to do. I was looking at a pretty close to finished picture. Yeah. And that, I think that helped me a lot. Yeah, too. that gave you just a, a full palette already in front of you that you could just yeah. jump on. Yeah. That's awesome. And David modeled the dragon in the film, Elliot, after his, um, his cats. Wow. He, has, he has several cats. But to me, Elliot just seems like a big dog. And that was really easy for me to yeah. connect with. Because the, the CGI was so far along by the time I started, the character of the dragon was so emotional and so expressive. It's just, it made it so easy for me to score the scenes that the dragon was in especially. It was, yeah, it, it, and it surpassed my expectations of what I was expecting too. And it's such a great film. And I'm, it was a bummer that it didn't do as well as, you know, yeah. that I ex hoping it did. But um. Yeah, it's a great film. If people haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. I think it's I on Netflix. And it's, it's on Netflix right now. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's true joy to work on. It's one of the hardest things I've ever I've ever done. Um, yeah, just just because of the amount of work, but uh, I loved it. Loved working on it. Loved working with David. Loved loved working with Disney. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully it happens again for Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that will. I mean, I don't it's, want you to say anything you can't say, but yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's possible, but mm. not. Uh, it's like in in yeah. process. Yeah, it's basically. very early on still. Well, yeah, there's there's nothing confirmed, nothing set. They're just kind of talking, developing and, still. Yeah, yeah, in development. It's in development. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that you guys can continue to work together because that would be an amazing project for for both of you. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do it. I think everybody would love to do it again. Yeah. So before we um, jump into Old Man the Gun, um, you did work on a, a, a show that I really enjoyed and I thought it was a breath of fresh air and uh, again unexpected, um, was, was The Exorcist, the TV series on Fox. Yeah. Um, you see something like that, you're like, oh, Exorcist on Fox, that's going to be really stupid, but then you that's watch That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like they, they want to do this? Yeah. It's like, well, all right. All right. But then you watch it and 
it's intent it's well done the yeah. characters are real and developed and it doesn't feel like a gimmicky thing and it's felt yeah. like its own thing yeah i mean that must have, and that, that was a very creative palette i think for a composer too i mean talk about that approach and really working from you know from ground zero working on up for, on, a, on a brand new series that must have been a challenge as well to yeah establish it and get it going yeah the showrunner on the first season was this guy rollin jones he was a writer on Weeds and Desperate Housewives mm. and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I think this was his first showrunning gig. And he had such specific ideas about the storytelling that he wanted to do in the first season. And not only that, he knows more about contemporary classical music than basically anyone that mm. I know. And his library of stuff, like he... He put together a playlist before we started working of stuff that he wanted me to think about and other people to think about for music, uh, musical inspiration for the show. Mm -hmm. um, not temp music, but just like stuff to reference as the palette that he was looking for. And, and uh, it was just such great stuff, it, stuff that nobody's thinking about. Not nobody, but stuff that I hadn't heard other people yeah. bringing into the mix in, in television. And uh, it basically made me feel like I had an open playing field in front of me. And he essentially wanted a contemporary classical, avant-garde classical score mm. for, for the show. Yeah, And so that's what I made. And, and he wanted some choral stuff. Um, both my parents um, were choir directors oh, wow. at churches and, and organists and pianists, but spent a lot of time directing choirs. And I used to go on choir trips with, I used to sing in their choirs, but I also used to go on like my dad's college choir trips to yeah, Europe wow. when I was a little kid. Um, and so I spent a lot of time around choir music and, and church music. And this is a very church music very heavy churchy, show. Churchy show. <laughs> so I felt like, oh, I know exactly what to do for this. <laughs> I remember it from when I was a kid. Um, but I got the chance to write some like weird choral music, yeah. and um, he wanted some stuff like um, like Hildegard, some old chanting, um, medieval chanting, and and I'd never done that before. So much fun to do that. Yeah. Um, some string quartet stuff. He had. Um, referenced this Armenian composer Komitas mm. and I didn't know his work before that yeah. um, but he was uh, he was like an Alan Lomax of sorts he spent a lot of time cataloging Armenian folk music but was also composing his own music within that sort of world and he composed this most beautiful um, arias and piano piece solo piano pieces and that was a reference for me and allowed me to write music that felt like that sort of like early 20th century late 19th century chamber music with a soprano soloist it's just a total blast for me that's amazing yeah and it turned out so well and talk about because you also wrote the main theme the i of, did and that's that's important that's an important part of a show i mean yeah. you think about game of thrones or anything that's like that's the hook it is i mean yeah. what was it like how do you know when you get it right like did you, <laughs> or you just like figuring it out and you're like oh there we go that's like, <laughs> like what's the process for writing a tv theme <laughs> uh after i did so i did the pilot 
first and then it got picked up mm -hmm. and then we started working on um, other episodes and the theme so there was no theme for the pilot when we made it um, which meant that I could like build a palette within that pilot episode of, mm -hmm. of the stuff that we wanted to use and then I used that to inform um, the theme but uh, in between those two things pilot and working on the series we had um, a summer and so I spent part of that summer writing a bunch of demos of possible themes and when we got to one that Rollin liked he sent it to their title cards team and they built some title cards around it mm. um, and the version that he preferred was actually a solo piano version but the folks at Fox wanted something a bit more orchestrated so I took the solo piano version that he had approved and then filled it out with some strings and a little bit of choral stuff and a little other uh, bits and bops and, and that um, that was it basically. It was just one of the ideas that I submitted that uh, that Rollin really liked. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that, and that's a great show. I really enjoyed it. Like, <laughs> I know you didn't do the second season, but it's, uh, it's, it's a fabulous show. It really turned out well. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun for me to work on. Um, so now let's, let's talk about Old Man and the Gun, which yeah. uh, is, oh, sorry, Old Man, it's Old Man and the Gun, right? Old Man and the Gun. And the Gun. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, again, you reuniting with David. Yep. And uh, he's, it seems like he's kind of sticking with this little bit aesthetic that a ghost story was kind of shooting a little bit, feels like a, like a film of, of a different time period, you know, shooting mm -hmm. it with, I think on film. And yep. Um, so talk about the approach uh, for scoring something like what, what's the film what's the feel of the film what's the tone of the film what were the discussions you had with David for this one based on a true story about a very uh, an older bank robber who breaks out of prison and then goes on a unprecedented run of bank robberies um, as an older man uh, in his 70s with a couple of buddies who were also in their late 60s and 70s and uh, they were dubbed the over the hill gang <laughs> And um, they robbed a bunch of like really small town banks that didn't have up-to-date security systems mm. back in the 80s. And there was a cop in Dallas who sort of tracked them down and finally caught this guy, Forrest Tucker. Yeah. Uh, this is Robert Redford as Forrest Tucker. He says this is his last film. Yes, He's I read that. Retiring. Retiring. That's, yes. The more weight on your shoulders. <laughs> One of the greatest screen actors of all time. <laughs> You're going to be the lasting impression now. Uh, he, Redford was also in Pete's Dragon, yeah. so I'd already gotten a chance to write some music for some monologues that he gave yeah. in that film. I'm glad that I did. This is a little bit, take some of the pressure off. <laughs> uh, but the rest of the cast also puts on more pressure because it's yeah, a lot of Spacek. scenes between Redford and Sissy Spacek, and it's so electric. I, uh, I could just watch it over and over again. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very distracting, kind of, when you have to yeah. write music for it. I'd know, rather just watch them yeah. <laughs> talk back and forth. Um, and then Danny Glover and Tom Waits are the other two bank robbers. Uh, it's just, like, top-to-bottom stellar cast. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly when, but somewhere in pre-production, like maybe when I was visiting the set or maybe just after reading the script, uh, I thought that the film could do well with a mostly jazz score. And I hadn't been doing a lot of jazz lately, but it was something that I spent a lot of time doing um, 
in college mm -hmm. and then a couple years after college. And, and not only uh, studying jazz, but like playing in small groups and like restaurants on the weekends and that kind of thing um, when I was just gigging as a, like a musician for hire. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had an experience in college where Wynton Marsalis came to my university and he, uh, I ended up having like a master class with him and he was very encouraging and he's such an amazing educator. And then at, at the end of this experience where he came to this university to accept an award, he and his septet at the time ended up sitting in with this coffeehouse band that I had mentioned earlier with this professor and, and me, and we played music together for like an hour. And that just really set me on a course to being obsessed with jazz for wow. several years and feeling like excited about, more excited about music than I had ever been. So it sort of brought me to where I am now. So yeah. for me, Old Man the Gun was a way to honor and revisit that jump start my passion for music yeah that's amazing um, so so I, I I wrote I told David that that's what I wanted to do and uh, he seemed willing to go down that road yeah so I wrote some jazz demos and they fortunately they really worked like once there was a film to actually plug them into yeah um, they felt like they really belonged in that world and so I just kept going in that in that uh, style and so there's a piano trio that is the backbone of the score and then some um, saxophone and uh, strings around that and, and a few other things but mainly jazz score and uh, I mean was it a challenge to kind of I mean your, your protagonist is a is a criminal yeah so you have to make him be able to you know for the audience to sympathize with him was that a, yeah. a bit of a, a challenge to flesh that that character out or was it no it was no. all there it was all there he's so lovable <laughs> robert redford <laughs> who could hate that guy you can't hate it's even it's like other characters in the film say this they're like well he was just he was, he was sort of a gentleman he was a gentleman yeah i saw it <laughs> <laughs> or he was such a nice guy a nice friend <laughs> So no, I don't feel like I had to do anything for that. I yeah. think um, more than anything, I just wanted to keep things moving. Uh, this film has a lot more dialogue than Pete's Dragon or Ghost Story did, mm. or Ain't the Body Saints. So there wasn't, I didn't have to do like as much heavy lifting mm. in that kind of storytelling. Yeah. And that left me a little bit freer to just write these um, jazz pieces that could sort of bubble in and out of uh, focus when needed well that's that's awesome i'm glad that we get to hear another you know daniel and david collaboration so i'm excited <laughs> me too comes out uh, comes out in like a month yeah in october yeah. yeah that'll be exciting um and you have uh a so coming uh coming up you're also going back on tour yeah with your with your band dark rooms yes um, and talk about that side of, I guess, your musical life. That's a completely different artistic venue for you. I mean, it probably yeah. tickles a different part of your brain, writing yeah. songs and stuff like that. Sure, it does. So, but you keep continuing to do. It. I mean, that's still part of your. your yeah. I mean, I mean, how do you juggle? I mean, juggle the career that you have now as a film composer with. Is it still easy to keep up that life of touring? It's more difficult, and whereas um, when I first started working on films, I was still playing as a gun for hire in other people's bands. Mm -hmm. I basically had to stop doing that 
and now it's just my own band, Dark Rooms, for which I write the music and I front the band, uh, and and then film scoring yeah. and, and TV scoring. And uh, I think it would probably be a good idea for me to say no to more projects in order to make uh, a real carved out time for the touring, but um, I'm bad at saying no, so. <laughs> I'll be doing a little bit of both kinds of work at the same time yeah. while I'm on the road. Fortunately, I've had experience doing that. I had to do a little bit of work on The Exorcist from a tour that I was on. And last year, I had to do a little bit of work on Smilf and on Old Man and the Gun from mm -hmm. a tour that I was on. Um, so I figured out a way to work from the road that seems to work okay um, and that everybody seems to be happy with. Uh, but... If I could do it, I would rather just be on tour and focus on tour and then work on film and focus on film and do it about like 50-50. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things pays a lot more than the other thing does. <laughs> so You're right. I am not, I'm not doing that right now. But I feel really lucky that, um, that Dark Rooms has enough of a following at this point that we can go out and do like a three-week U.S. tour and then a three-week Europe tour and have it be a successful thing that feels yeah, you're going to like Paris and, and yeah. yeah I mean that's amazing yeah we're, <laughs> we're excited and we've been doing this for a few years now going out for about three weeks in the fall mm -hmm. going to Europe and, and playing a, a bunch of shows around basically Western Europe so I'm excited to go back to some of the places that we've been and uh, we're playing a few new places this time too that'll be fun yeah so I saw you I think you played at the Viper, the Viper Room. I think one show years ago. I did and I went yes. to that show. I think that's right really? when I met you. I think right, okay. right when uh, Ain't the Body Saints came out. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that and sounds I, right. And yeah, so I think it was then. As I was like, yeah, and I, th I forget if you had a publicist at the time, but somebody invited me. So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was cool. I mean, you guys are amazing. It was great to see you play. Thanks. <laughs> it's a lot of fun for me. That is the world that really got me excited about doing music when I wasn't super excited about like playing in an orchestra or studying classical music in, in college, playing in bands was what got me excited about doing music again. And it is something that is completely unlike anything else I do. And yeah. that kind of connection with an audience, that kind of um, open expression and immediate feedback from the people that you are creating a connection with is uh, totally electric. And different than working here for months and then and then and then waiting to see what the reviews are <laughs> go, Ooh, they like it <laughs> yeah yeah very, very different Comple yeah but that's amazing that you get to to juggle both worlds still so that's that's yeah, great super lucky <laughs> um so besides um old man the gun coming up you have uh, a show on on amazon you're saying with uh yes there's a show that starts in a couple weeks uh, streaming on Amazon called Forever, and it's so good. It was created by Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard. Alan Yang's from Parks and Rec and Master of None. Matt Hubbard was writer on Thirty Rock and um, Superstore. Is that a show? Yeah, yeah, yeah Superstore. Yeah, Superstore. Uh, and uh, they've created this beautiful show. It's Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen and Catherine Keener. And I don't want to give away anything that shouldn't be given away, but Maya and Fred are a couple who go through some really crazy stuff early on in the series and then spend the rest of the time trying to 
figure out, trying to reconcile their lives with how they've changed in these mm. really dramatic ways. And uh, so much fun for me to work on it. Um, very different from others, the stuff that yeah, I usually yeah. end up doing. Is it, is it, is it full-on comedy or is it kind of comedy drama? Or? It's, a, it's a dramedy. Oh, it's a dram- it feels dramedy. more like Master of None than yeah. it does like, than like a, Parks and Rec or Three right. Rock. Um, so that was, I mean, I mean, a dramedy is a challenge. I mean, anything with any co- comedic anything, any comedic undertones must be a challenge, I think, for music. I mean, yeah. that, so, but. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I, I'm fortunate in that the comedies or dramedies that I have worked on, um, like Smilf, mm-hmm. or this film that I did a few years ago called Tumble Down, yeah, yeah. Um, and this new show, Forever, didn't want comedic they didn't want the music to do the comedy yeah. lifting they wanted something else and especially with forever any time that i would do anything that in any way remotely approached comedy alan and matt would say no 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 we, no, we want something that sounds more like a ghost story for this part <laughs> <laughs> that's why we hired you <laughs> we saw a ghost story we loved a ghost story Give us something in that world. Right. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I can't wait to, to check that out. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to, I guess, uh, just to talk about your general process, and if, of course this question is going to, it will change, I guess, depending on what film you're working on and what project it is, but where does the first note come from for you? Where do you seek out that first note or idea i mean do you like i mean of course with you working with david you probably have the luxury of coming on early and talking yeah. to him but if you come yeah. on late on a film do you like to watch the cut do you like to read the script do you like to talk to the director what's kind of the first step in your process so if it's david then i am coming on early and that means um just sort of developing musical ideas mm-hmm. as other parts of the production are being developed uh-huh. and i i love working that way yeah not always the case um because Sometimes the composer is one of the last people to be exactly, hired, yeah. and things are f- much further along than that. And editors need music while they're editing to figure out what music is going to do, so there will be reference music or temp music involved in the show. But this past year, um, I worked on two films where the first time that I saw those films, um, they had no music in them. Um, and uh, Old Man and the Gun was, was one of those films. And, and seeing a film with no music in it whatsoever reminds me of when I first started working, like when I was working on David's short film Pioneer and there was no music in there at all. He didn't put in any references. And when I can do that, if there's anything in the film or the show that I connect with in any way, then the ideas just start like exploding in my head. Mm -hmm. And they just come up, the instruments, I can start hearing them, and the melodies, and rhythm, and structure, and pacing, all that stuff. It sort of shows up up here. Um, I feel really lucky that I have that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it'll last forever, but <laughs> at least for now, the ideas keep showing up. Um, and that's, I think, going forward, even if I'm coming on to a project where there, there is temp music because I'm coming on towards the end of the process, I'm going to watch it first with yeah. nothing just to let my own ideas have their moment before I take a listen to what other people were thinking about would mm. be the right thing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where I would like to start. Sometimes if it has to go really quickly, especially with TV stuff, 
I really appreciate the references that they're giving me because it gives me a roadmap and a template that helps me to work a lot faster. So sometimes just listening to what they want is, is my starting yeah, point. Yeah, some people, I mean, there's always this like negative thing about temp music, but I think when used correctly, it can be a very useful tool too. It can be. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. can be a bad thing because if somebody's in love with a temp and forces you to mimic it, but yeah, in those cases when you have time and you need to just communicate ideas, music is the best tool for communication. In my Yes, <laughs> I, I agree. And I've been lucky to work on mostly projects where the directors and or producers were not, um, they didn't suffer from tempitis. Mm -hmm. They didn't insist that I make something that sounded exactly like the music right. that they had in there. They were able to let go and or look beyond it. Um, and, and that is a blessing. It's not always that way. Sometimes they just need something that sounds like what they had, and sometimes what they had is it works well, and, yeah. and I can understand that too. It's not a very creatively fulfilling way to work, but sometimes you just need to get the job done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and in, 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 in those cases, it's, um, it's just good if, if you have a music editor who has a good library. Mm and i've had some great music editors with great libraries <laughs> <laughs> that have given me options i in fact i'm starting on a show um in a couple months a new netflix show that i don't think i can tell you the name of yet but okay um, keep it play it safe yes Let's play it safe oh, probably better to play safe yeah but i but i had a call with um the post-production supervisor yesterday and he wanted to know if i had a library that i could give him so that the temp, temp music and the reference music that they would start out with would be stuff that I actually wanted. Wow. That's the first time that's ever happened. Yeah. I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. Like, if you have a composer who has some ideas already about the, what they want mm. for the music but hasn't actually started writing that music yet, if that composer can give you something that is in the ballpark of what they think they'll eventually do, that could really speed up the process. I've never heard of that. That's amazing. Process yeah. Yeah, make <laughs> it's it like you get easier to pick the for temp. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Daniel, I just want to thank you so much for your time this evening to yeah, talk, my pleasure. I mean, to walk through your career and, and up to this point, and, and I just can't wait for everything that comes next. And it's I've, I've been a fan of yours since Ain't Nobody Saints when I first discovered the score. It really kind of, I mean, I still listen to it all the time, so I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to discuss. Thanks, Kaya. <laughs> I'm sorry that we ran out of time to talk about poodles, but... <laughs> Uh, next, we'll do a part two. Part two. Okay. Uh, episode two will be all poodles. Okay. <laughs> and we'll get John in here too. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs>